Well, hello and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life, another special episode. Following on from last week's conversation with Mary Virginia Swanson and Darius Himes concerning the photo book, this week we're going to talk to Peter Fetterman, primarily about galleries, selling photographs as prints, and also collecting, collecting photographic prints. So who is Peter Fetterman? Well, Peter was born in London and he's been deeply involved in the medium of photography for over 30 years. Initially, a filmmaker, producer and collector, he set up his first gallery over 20 years ago. Fetterman was one of the pioneer tenants of Bergamot Station, the Santa Monica Centre of the Arts, when it first opened in 1994. And today his gallery has one of the largest inventories of classic 20th century photography in the United States, particularly in humanist photography, including work by Henri Cartier-Bresson, Sebastian Salgado, Steve McCurry, Ansel Adams, Paul Caponegro, Willie Ronas, Andre Cortez, Manuel Alvarez Bravo and Lillian Bassman, amongst many others. His book, The Power of Photography, was published in 2022 and came out of a daily email that he produced during lockdown. As you're about to hear, Peter and I's conversation is incredibly, uh, I suppose you would say, rambunctious, um, very honest and full of passion and enthusiasm from both of us. I have to say that we'd never met before or spoken before, although we were aware of each other. I think you'll agree, we sort of got on. So, Peter, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, Grant. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, because um, I always do a little bit of research into everybody who I talk to or photograph. Uh, We seem to have so many touch points um, which are similar. But also a lot of the photographers who you represent and your kind of take on photography, um, I've worked with a lot of those photographers and our, our take seems to be very similar. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. But what I want to really do is get straight into the nitty gritty of the thing and really talk about where we are today with the idea of photographers selling prints. I think it's a kind of feast or famine business for photographers. They're kind of either in or out or in demand or perhaps not in demand. Um, there's no rationale to it as, as to why that is the case. Consumers are fickle in, in, in anything they buy. You know, why do they buy um, that color shirt as opposed to the other shirt? And there's so much stuff out there, which is somewhat overwhelming and the choice is enormous and and it goes sadly also for photography there's so many images floating around on various platforms be it auctions galleries art fairs it can be somewhat overwhelming for somebody especially new entering into this collecting field which is interesting because i mean it raises One particular discussion point around the importance of the gallery, the gallery system, which, as you know, is very different in the UK than it is to the US where you're based now. Yeah. It also raises the, sorry, I was going to say, it also raises the question of 
archival imagery against contemporary imagery. Yeah. And why is the collector buying the work? Well, that's a very good point. I mean, I, you know, from my own point of view and my own history with this medium, everything is subject subjective. I mean, I'm moved by an image because it touches, it, it relates to my autobiography or it brings back a memory or it's a wish fulfillment or it's a dream that there's no logic to any of it. I mean, I collect and have always collected from, from the heart. Um, and that's been my only, I suppose, uh, measure of whether it's important for me or not. But I think in that case, it's a bit like music, isn't it? You kind of have those kind of touchstones as you're growing up. And then they they might take you to somewhere else, somebody else who's making music in a similar way, uh, which leads you to someone else to someone else. It's all about memory and personal connection. And that's what's great about it. If you can find those images that make you feel good or bring back good memories and give you some kind of solace and hope or aspiration, I think that's the power of photography. But do we then also have to be aware that a lot of photography, and you're probably going to hate me for saying this, (laughs) but it is bought from an interior designer perspective. Well, there are different kinds of collectors. There are, you know, that famous uh, Woody Allen line, I think, I can't remember, is it from Manhattan? You know, I I need something to go over the green couch. And literally, you know, I have a great green couch in my gallery and uh, people do say that to me. And, you know, it's not for me to be judgmental if that's the reason they're buying it. I mean, I hope it also, apart from filling a space above their green couch, gives them some kind of pleasure. You know, there is this thing now and there's a real dichotomy for, for me here where between the idea of what is the contemporary art practice image and then what is, you know, a lot of the work that you represent, it it began as commissioned work. It began in magazines. Yeah, I mean, photographers had to make a living. You know, Cartier-Bresson had to make a living in some kind of form. So when Magnum, you know, there's a go do a story in, in China, he went off and did a story in China. I mean... You know, unless you're born independently wealthy, you have to work. And, you know, guys like Ansel Adams used to do company reports, do whatever he could to make a living and support a family. And maybe the art came a bit later. But, you know, we all live in the real world. Photographers live in the real world. They have mortgages. They have children. They have homes to support. And their practice is support. So they need and want and should have an in- income stream. I mean, the government's not going to give it. They're not going to give you a special pension because you're a, a good photographer. You know, the, the degree of support for artists is pretty mem- minimal. But in that case, where do you stand on the idea of this, the use of the word art? When it's coming, when it comes to photography, well, I try and avoid curatorial speak at any occasion I can. You know, art for me is maybe Art Garfunkel and Paul Paul Simon. I mean, 
you know, I hate the pretentiousness of the art world. And that's something I've always had problems with and struggle with to this day. The elitism of it, the snobbery of it, the kind of ecosystem of it, you know, oh, we're a much more important gallery than your gallery. It all makes me sick, to be honest. So I try and avoid it and not even think about it and just react instinctively to what I love. And I think most gallery owners hopefully have a passion and their job is to, you know, educate people and introduce people to things they love. So it's all very personal at the end of the day. From a gallery standpoint, you hope you're going to connect with people who connect to your, quote, taste. So it's very personal for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why I did it. That's how I fell into it. And that's the reason that keeps me going. I mean, I don't have a real job. I don't think I'm capable of having a real job, whatever that means. It's it's uh, by some vague miracle, I've managed to survive all these years doing something that gives me a lot of pleasure and something that I love. And of course, you know, we work hard at it, you know, even more so now because we have galleries that are open 24 seven. So I come into the office, come into the gallery in the morning and there's 10 messages, one from Hong Kong, one from Paris, one from China. I mean, it's nonstop. We're on call like 7-Eleven. We're like doctors. You know, we have to be there and answer questions and be be available. But is that work? I mean, it doesn't seem work. Work to me is like going down a coal mine. I'm very fortunate. I mean, you know, you pay a price for it, but. I have enormous freedom to indulge my own taste, which is a gift. Yeah, but you know, you're you're sounding much more like a photographer speaking about their photography than perhaps, and I add this as a perhaps, some gallery owners, some curators, some people who've kind of drunk the Kool-Aid of that art market. Well, they have, and that's their modus operandi, and that gives them their identity. You know, they dress in black and, you know, give lectures, the words of which I can't even understand. Uh, I don't want to, really, because it, I don't connect to it. I don't, I don't connect to that kind of people. I connect to people who are human, who are real, who are authentic, and have emotion. And the art world is full of some wonderful, wonderful, dedicated people, and also full of a lot of people you wouldn't want to break bread with. That's interesting because it, it, it I think, presents an issue because that we, we've spoken very much about the collector, and I think there is a disconnect between the photographer creating work, the photographer hoping to sell work, especially nowadays when so many of them are trying to sell prints directly from their websites. Yeah. And that idea of audience, which is something I talk a lot about, which is that quite often the photographer forgets that you need an audience. You need that community to sell to. You need to build those um, relationships. And funnily enough, you you represent Colin Jones. And I think this this is a good example because I first met Colin in the late 1990s when he literally didn't have a bean. Nobody yeah. was representing his work. Um, and I was trying to get people interested in his work. Nobody was. 
I ended up buying, I've bought lots and lots of prints from him, all for 50 quid each yeah, um, yeah. that he was making in the loft yeah. of the house. But at that time, no one was interested. Now, I know you're a big fan of Colin's work. Yeah, I think he's a fantastic photographer. I think there were so many people like Colin who I, I was fortunate enough to meet. I mean, people like Thurston Hopkins and Grace Robertson and Wolf Shizitsky. Uh, I mean, these were world-class photographers, but for one reason or another, never, because maybe they didn't have that ego, that that drive. I mean, there's, cer- there's a certain kind of photographer who maybe have more ego than talent, and they, they break through because they're just like, balls in a a china store and they have to become famous and rich and and of course it's all bullshit but you know certain people i mean like wolf shizitsky very self-effacing man thurston grace these were like basically wonderful simple wonderful people who didn't have that drive to become rich or famous which i think is why they're talented and that's why their talent shows. I mean, Penti Samalati is another example, a very humble, genius photographer who sells his prints for like $1,200, you know, and couldn't care less about fame or money. And that's what makes him great, because the work is uncorrupted. It's pure. He does it for himself. He does it for, you know, for his soul. And that's such an old-fashioned concept when the art world is basically driven by money. I, I was fortunate enough to spend uh, quite a bit of time with Wolf and and yeah. and interview him, um, which anybody listening to this, they could go on the website and they can hear it. Um, and yeah. also Thurston and Grace were wonderful. I often used to drop into their house down at some um, these people don't exist anymore, sadly. It's very hard to find people. Maybe it's a, just a generational thing, but when that group of photographers were working, there was no market. They, you know, it never dawned on them that actually they could actually make a living by selling prints because nobody was buying them. Well, this is the point, isn't it? It's so easy to think that w- the way it is today is the way in which it's always been. I mean, yeah. a, another photographer that you represent is Kurt Marcus yeah. and an interesting um, Bill Klein, William Klein. Now, I, can, yeah. I commissioned William Klein in the early 90s and I rang him up and asked him to do a shoot for me. And at that time, he was making no photographs, not selling any prints. Nobody was interested. Kurt Marcus, I have got lots of his Montana pictures. Again, incredible. Yeah, but he used to commission, I commissioned him to do work for L magazine. But yeah. at that time, people weren't interested in buying the prints. And that's why I've got lots of these prints, because they well, were just fortunate men. You, you're, <laughs> you were you were in the right place at the right time with the right photographers. You're absolutely right. I was, but also I think what's interesting about what I'm what I'm trying to get to here is not sort of talking about my private collection. But sounds it, amazing when you show it to me. <laughs> I'm going to be drooling when I come visit you, Grant. Somebody did come to the house and interview me once and they were going from room to room and they couldn't quite believe it, that they were all gifts and I hadn't bought them all. But anyway, that's another thing. Um, The point I'm trying to make here, I suppose, is that this is a new market. You're saying that the photography market is separate from the art market. 
I think that a lot of photographers feel and use the term artist now to describe themselves and feel that they should be part of that art market and then do sometimes um, start to make work, which they feel that the contemporary art market wants to see, and it becomes incredibly confusing. So how does the photographer who wants to sell prints actually, you know, do that? Well, I think every photographer needs an advocate. Um, I mean, I remember walking around Parry Photo a couple of years ago with Salgado, and he was getting more and more agitated. And I, I said, what's up, Sebastian? I said, Peter, this is all shit. They make for market. They make for market. No soul. Rubbish. I got to leave. I can't stand it. Oh, yeah. And he was right. And I felt the same. And I go to these fairs and photo fairs and art fair, and I feel like an, I'm an alien. I don't. I can't relate to maybe 90% of what is on display. So that maybe says I'm irrelevant or my taste is, you know, just out of touch with what people want. And maybe it is. It probably is, actually. So, you know, we soldier on and champion the people we we, we respect and love. And uh, sometimes we can make it and sometimes we can't. It's a very fragile ecosystem. How much do you think that people are buying into the work and how much do you think people are being into, buying into the hype that surrounds the photographer? Well, I, I, sadly, I, I think it's the latter. Um, I think people get caught up in a wave of being au courant, whatever that means, and status and all those intangible things that motivate some people to buy things. Um I don't think we live in a pure world. I mean, there is so much hype and I look, you know, and I can't, I don't buy into it and I kind of run in the opposite direction. When someone says to me, oh, my work is conceptual, I come out in a rash. Um, I feel ill. It's, I have to go have a ginger ale because to me, the photographs I love and that got me interested were photographs that touched me and helped me relate to other human beings. And if I don't see that in the work, I, I, I just run away. But you are a very successful gallerist. So obviously there is a demand for, for the work and, and your approach. Well, I think over the years I've connected with people who respect the passion, respect the taste, respect the fact that, we're not elitist, that we're very egalitarian. And I don't speak, to, I don't, you know, speak down to them. I don't lecture them. I don't try to impress them. I just hopefully show photos that I love and turn them on. I mean, it's just very simple. So success is based on finding a group of people who you can relate to and who relate to you and respect you and you respect them and you enjoy being in their company. I mean, it's a very social business in that sense. You know, you're not going into a shop to buy a pair of shoes and you buy the you buy the shoes and you leave and you walk out and, you know, you don't have any further connection with the person who sold you the shoes. Um, it's a very wonderful relationship I've had over the years with, with some great, great people. Sadly, a lot of them are like dying off. And my biggest frustration 
is that it doesn't seem to be a new generation of collectors who want, who enjoy reading, who enjoy developing their connoisseurship, their scholarship, just enjoy learning. Because we live in a culture that, you know, is pretty instant. It's a TikTok culture, isn't it? It's an Instagram. It's a, it's, I don't know what it is. I can't relate to it. So I feel like I'm a bit out of sync. You're very, you, you, in a way, it would be very easy to, to to look at the work and the photographers you represent and see it as a golden age or an extended golden age, shall we say, of photography, yeah. right from sort of George Hoynig and Hewn through to Daffy Jones, who, who I was yeah. talking to only last week. Yeah, you gave a wonderful talk to him. Yeah, He's a yeah. lovely guy. He's just like... He's wonderful. He's not pretentious. He doesn't call himself an artist. He's just a guy who enjoys people and observing people and capturing people in a deeply human way. And that's why he's special. And that's why he stands out from all the other like, oh, God, if I see another big red digital print uh, about nothing, it's which I do all the time. So people like it's, it gives you hope that people like Daffod are still functioning around. Absolutely, and he's such an incredible, incredibly supportive person as well. Yeah. I think, but 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 what I was sort of saying there was, if we look at that work, I mean, what you're talking about the characteristics that Daffod has, or or you know any other of the f- photographers that you're talking about, um, we're talking about kind of themes here of empathy, of connection. Of of a humanity, a humanist approach to photography, which is something I certainly grew up with, um, being of an age at which um, you know for that humanist photography was still very relevant. But actually, that work, although perhaps to some it might feel archival, I think it's still totally relevant to where photography is now. And if you didn't keep selling it, it would very easily fall into kind of a historical archive and it wouldn't be seen. Yeah. So that's, I suppose, is my mission is to promote and push and believe in the people we believe in. And and I'm such a dreamer that I hope that maybe that kind of photography will come back in vogue, so to speak. Um but I think that you know there there are at the, this point we have got so many photographers who were creating that work in the sixties, seventies, eighties, not so much maybe in the nineties, but starting to drop off. But that work now does sit under the bed; it sits in dusty boxes, and there's a real problem for a lot of photographers who I speak to as to well, what's going to happen to my archive? Museums don't want it, libraries don't want it, collections nobody knows what to do with it. It's a real big issue is what happens to the legacy of all these great photographers. And sadly enough, for the most part, you know, the spouses or their children or their heirs have no clue how to, what to do with it. And in a way, kind of mess it up for the, for the, you know, not deliberately, but they're just not equipped to see, you know, the wood from the trees. And they're not trained or have the time or energy or expertise to manage it. It's a big responsibility. So what do photographers do? Well, they hopefully got to find some allies uh, whilst they're alive, people who believe in them and 
would be their will be their advocates when they're in the big dark room in the sky. Um, it's all about that special connection. So, are we talking about photographers having to be much better? communicators and better at sort of kind of stepping outside of the medium to recognize that they've got to make these connections. Yeah, I think if they're mature and somewhat sophisticated and not, you know, totally, um, what's the word, not self-obsessed, but get, get real, get practical and say, okay, I've produced this incredible body of work. I, you know, I, I I want my legacy to be preserved somehow, and I don't want to burden my 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 spouse or my kids. So I better like spend some time now, whilst I can still get out of bed and walk, and try and connect with people who get what I've spent my life doing, and hopefully they will find that person. But do you think that? there is an unrealistic expectation of a lot of photographers, older, whatever age, um, when it comes to what that work is actually worth? Well, I, I, I do think ego gets wrapped up in in price. I mean, well, if, you know, Cartier-Bresson is getting that, why I'm as good as Cartier-Bresson, why can't I get that for my work? Or, I mean, a lot of that goes on and it's a very competitive and irrational. Um, you know, pricing is ridiculous as well. It's, it is irrational. There's no science to it. I mean, I try to guide photographers and say, well, you know what? You can always put your prices up, but you can't put them down. You know, just just like be patient and and build your market and don't make such astronomical demands going in. And that happens with estates as well. The the heirs of these photographers, uh, they're so wrapped up in it emotionally that they can't be objective or smart, whatever the word is. It's 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 a difficult field to navigate. Which raises the, the another point. There's so many things I could discuss with you at such length, but it raises the other point of the open edition over the the numbered edition. Well, that, that's a particular bet noir of mine. I actually think editioning is bullshit. An image is either great or not great. If it's great, it's always going to be in demand. And if it's not great, sticking a number on it doesn't make it special or commercial or people want it. I mean, I can show you a photo, a bad photo I took of my daughter, and I can say, it's well, it's one of one. It has a lot of value to me, but won't have any value to anybody else. And the abuses under the, you know, the additioning concept are pretty horrendous. You know, a photographer will say, I'm doing an addition of 25. It'll sell out. Then they'll do an addition of another 25, three inches smaller or larger. I mean, what are you collecting? Numbers? Or are you collecting the image? What are you actually, what's your, your thought process? Are you buying a number or are you buying an image that makes you feel good or you communicate with? You know, as my friend Penty said, you know, you can do, you can, there can be a major museum show of the history of photography, but if you would only include images that were numbered in addition, you'd have no history of photography. You'd have no great exhibition. It's ludicrous when you think about it. Many dealers who adhere to 
or who are evangelists for auditioning because it's a sales tool. It's a marketing tool. You can scare people saying, well, unless you buy this, there's only two left. I mean, I find it kind of obnoxious and abhorrent, but I'm in the minority. I get into trouble with all my gallery colleagues when I say that. They look at me like I'm like insane. But at the same time, you do exist within that world. Well, there are certain photographers who I want to work with who or maybe contemporary photographers who have drunk that Kool-Aid. And, you know, it's not for me to tell them they should just, you know, reevaluate their whole methodology. But you're asking me in a personal opinion, and I, I think it's I think it's basically nonsense. I mean, a great Cortez is a great Cortez. He didn't audition his French prints because when he was started to sell them, there was no market. What, what, what does it make? You know, but same with Ansel Adams. I mean, he produced an enormous amount of unedition prints, but they're hard to find now because they're great and people don't want to part with them. And he's an artist of such great stature that he will always be in demand and his prints will always be scarce because however many he made, he didn't make enough. I'm in that situation right now. There's lots of people I know would buy Ansel Adams prints, but we just can't find them in great condition. And he didn't edition his prints for the most part. It's all nonsense. I never expected this conversation to quite go in this direction. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm being very, I don't know. I'm shooting my big mouth off, aren't I, Grant? Well, yeah, saying yeah. Things, I'm saying things that people basically don't want to hear. Well, this is the perfect podcast for that, because I, as you know, I tend to do that quite a bit. Yeah. But I think it's important to have that voice and speak out because the photographers who don't hear that will are very easily led along a road to think that there is only one way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what's got me into the biggest hot water with my colleagues. So I say to them, you know, and I say to all our clients, we have a a unique money back gallery policy. I, if you buy a photo from me for $2,000, $5,000, I'll always buy it back from you for at least that, because as a policy, we stand behind what we sell. And all my dealer colleagues like scream at me and say, you can't say that to people. What if everybody brings it all back at once? We're like, you know, and I say, you should only buy from a dealer who stands behind what they sell. I mean, it seems to me pretty basic common sense to me. If you're saying that this photo is worth $5,000 and you're going to buy it back for at least $5,000 next week, next year, 10 years, whatever, I think that's a good thing. And I think clients should only buy from galleries that have that policy. And that gets me into a lot of trouble. Yeah, well, I can see why it would. But, you know, you said before about Photo Paris. I mean, what is your take on this? big photo London, photo Paris type thing. These kind of, I see them as supermarkets. It upsets me, to be honest with you. And, you know, I'm kind of over it. And I'm trying to, you know what it's based on? This whole economic art fair system is based on one word called FOMO, fear of missing out. And that is the reason 
the galleries pay enormous sums of money to exhibit at these venues because they fear that if they they don't turn out, everybody's going to think they're out of business or they're bankrupt and they won't deal with them anyway. It's it's a very fragile ecosystem, and and from the you know for for the fair organizers' point of view, you know they're selling booths. They've got to fill the hall up. And how do they fill the room? They fill the room by people who have the wherewithal, or galleries who have the wherewithal to pay for it. And there may be great galleries that can't afford to spend $100,000 to turn up for a fair for five days. Um, you know, it's an uneven playing field. It's It's frustrating and it's annoying, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm always thinking from that, well, from two perspectives, I suppose, really. I did spend time working at Sotheby's for a while, which was an absolute revolution. It's a total transactional business, and they have big overheads. So on Monday, they're selling photos. On Tuesday, they're selling Michael Jordan's smelly sneakers. Um, On Wednesday, they're selling Elvis Presley's underwear. They've got to keep selling because that's what it's about. That's their business. But this is the really key thing, isn't it, where we're talking about, I mean, you're talking about being perfectly happy to sell commissioned photography. I never use the word commercial because to me, everything is commercial, but commissioned photography alongside self-initiated photography um, and not making any kind of differentiation between those two things, because at the end of the day, all of this is a business. You don't go into owning a photo gallery because you think you're going to become rich. I mean, I mean, to me, success now at an art fair is basically breaking even and not losing money. That's my new definition of success. And one hopes with all the time and energy you put into it, you'll meet a handful of people, maybe even one or two people who connect to your taste. So that's the reason you you know, fly 6,000 miles to turn up and do a fair in London or Paris or wherever. We're all dreamers. We're hoping that we're going to find soulmates somewhere in the world. And in my heyday, I suppose I was doing like eight, nine, 10 fairs a year. And I would do fairs, you know, that weren't just photo fairs. I would do any fair where I thought I could be, you know, I could, I'm, I'm, I'm an evangelist. I can bring my wares I'm a bit like a rock and roll band. I can turn up and sing my songs and hopefully people might applaud and actually buy something to pay for it all. So it's, you know, we operate on a wing and a prayer and a dream. We're all dreamers. Grant, you're a dreamer. You know, we, we, we all should have become lawyers or whatever. I had a grown up job, but we don't. And it's too late for me to change. I can see what you change. (laughs) <laughs> I can see why we're both big Bob Dylan fans. That, yeah. uh, that uh, the answer is blowing in the wind, Grant. But try, you know, where's the answer now? I don't know where it is. Well, um, I, you know, is I don't know if there is an answer. I, I, I think, and I think that's the frustration for a lot of photographers who are on their own. You know, are disconnected from perhaps what's going on. You know, they, you know, they go to Photo London or Photo Paris, whatever. They see the price of a print. They don't get it or they feel kind of alienated or disconnected from that. But at the same time, you know, they they share that passion, that enthusiasm, um, that love for photography. 
we need to, you know, what do we say to the photographer? How do we help the photographer to understand this world? Well, I, I think what I'm what I'm gonna say to you is is true. I think the photographer is not alone, bewildered, baffled, kind of rootless, trying to figure it out. We're all trying to figure it out. We're all trying to navigate something that we cannot control. And we cannot control people's taste and we cannot control people's fickleness. It's we're all on the same journey. We're not on different sides of the fence. I think we're all passionate about the art of photography and how do we keep alive to do it? And it, the, the issues that the photographer is, is facing are the same issues we are, as a gallery are facing because the world is totally uncertain and unpredictable. And if it, if it was that easy to figure out the path, we would all be doing it and none of us would have any stress or gray hair. But we have all that. And there's no way to wave us, you know, a magic wand and make it all better. But, you know, no one can control anything. No one can control what handbag is going to be the most popular this week. And no one in in the record business, the music business, can immediately say, well, I've got the new, you know, Swifty. I've got the new Taylor Swift. I found the new, you know, we're not alone. It's about fashion and taste. And it's all unpredictable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. But also, I, you know, as you well know, there is there are a lot of people out there who are, who are in a position to make a lot of money by either manipulating the market or finding that person and promoting that person, whether or not they have the qualities behind it to actually do that. And there is a lot of discussion at the moment amongst people like I know in particularly in the fashion industry, um, that there are a lot of fashion photographers that are being very highly promoted, but without an awful lot to show for it. Well, maybe that has always been the case, Grant. I mean, maybe it's always been like that. It's just that maybe it seems more extreme now. Just with fashion or with photography in general? I think with photography in general, it's... What makes one photographer great and another one, you know, just not great? Uh, what, 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 what are the ingredients, so to speak? Why, why do certain photographers have an immediacy of greatness about them, that their work somehow stands out immediately because it's fresh or it breaks convention or it's just special? I mean, I think Penti Samalati is special. There's no one else like him. I can't, I don't see work, anyone else creating that kind of very humanistic, light, joyous imagery. Because maybe that's not in fashion and he only makes small prints. So that distinguishes him immediately from everybody else who thinks, well, the larger the print I make, the more money I'm going to get. And that's probably what their gallery tells them. Well, I can remember, but I've told this story on the podcast before, being in Sotheby's, and there were a couple of pictures. Um, I think they were Gerhard Richter's, or I can't remember. But there were a couple of pictures leaning against a desk on the floor, and I said, well, what makes that one more valuable than that one? And the guy turned to me incredulous and said, well, it's bigger. Yeah. You know, well, and so, which proves your point. Yeah. I mean, people think bigger is better, and bigger can get more money. So... 
artists, photographers, you know, are influenced by that. I mean, if you want to be successful, make it big. And if you want to be really successful, make it big and red. So it's, and you can become totally cynical about it all. But I suppose there is some truth to what's going on. But, you know, the people who are special always swim against the tide. That's my feeling. And if you're just going to follow what everybody else does, I think you're doomed. I think as a as an artist, you've got to follow your own voice. And if you think, well, I'm not in vogue, well, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't be affected by the those other influences which you can't even control. So just do what you believe in and hope that somehow you you'll survive at it and maybe even flourish from it. And is there a case whereby uh, you know uh, Colin is, was a great example, and there are others, of course, that, you know, it's a bit like a band that dies and suddenly everybody or a singer that dies and some, suddenly they go to number one in the charts, you know, because somebody realises how great they were. Is there a case with a lot of photographers that you can have that? You know, I think uh, Saul Light is a great example of this. Yeah. You know, a fashion photographer disappears, then returns, you yeah. know, the great film about him, I think, was fantastic. In it was fabulous, fabulous photographer. And yeah. yeah, so his time came, sadly, towards the end of his life and he struggled to get there. But that's not an uncommon story, you know. Well, Van that's Gogh. what I'm saying. Maybe that it maybe that's the, the fate of the photographer. Is a sort Maybe of- that's the fate of any artist. I mean, it was the fate of Van Gogh. It's the yeah. fate. Maybe you're just not. Your time isn't when you're alive, but you've got to hope that greatness and quality and the strength of the work will survive. I mean, I look at Eugene Smith's photographs and they're just totally amazing and they're even greater. I look at Cartier Brasson's work every day and he only gets greater to me. The really great material will survive. But isn't that a great point with Eugene Smith? Because I think he's a photographer who has very much been kind of forgotten, put to one side. Yeah. You know, the work isn't seen that often. I mean, it's revered by a handful of people, maybe you and me and seven other people in the world. But hopefully you hope that it's all going to come back and people re- will reassess and rediscover. I mean, I'm working with two great American photographers, Paul Caponegro, who's in his 90s, George Tice, who's getting up there. I mean, to me, these are two of the great master photographers in American history of photography, and their prints are so affordable. But maybe they're not in fashion. Well, I think there's a whole lot, a lot of those photographers, actually, who aren't in fashion anymore, particularly yep. those guys from the 70s and early 80s, um, like Paul for example. I mean, what an extraordinary man, what an extraordinary human being. You, 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 you sit down with him and he's like a font of knowledge and inspiration and he's poetic and articulate and passionate. And you come out from having lunch with him and you feel you're floating uh, because he's the real deal. He's the real thing. And if you're a smart collector, you won't go for what's in fashion this week or what got the highest prices at auction last week, you go for what you really think is great. And that's what's interesting about being a collector. 
So you're not as much buying the print. Well, you are buying the print, but you're also buying into that person, into their life, into who they are. You're buying into their integrity. You're buying into their spirit. And you're hoping that if you're around this material, some of their magic is going to rub off on you during your day. I mean, any, any collector can buy a Basquiat if they got money. I mean, it doesn't take much genius to do that. I mean, you can follow, you can follow the trends, whoever's hot today, you know, just buy it. And people will think you're so smart and clever. Let's try and leave this with a a positive. Yeah. Because I like to try positive. I am too. I'm trying, I'm telling you, the positive thing is there, there's great work out there that's available that can be bought with peanuts, literally. So your job as a collector or wannabe collector, you know, don't just buy the obvious ones that everybody else is buying. Just develop your own taste and listen to your heart and go have fun and accumulate great work for very little money. That's what's great about photography and photography collecting. You know, it's a democratic medium still, even though prices have gone up, you can still buy something great for a relatively small amount of money. You know, I'd love to have a Mondigliani, but I can't afford it. I'd love to have a Degas, but I'm never going to be able to have one. But I could have an Edith Tudor Hart or a Wolf Shuzitsky or a Penty Samolati or a Cortez, something that would give me enormous pressure that I don't have to, you know, sell my soul for. Go against, go swim against the tide as a collector. Don't buy, that's my advice for your listeners. Just listen to your heart and buy what you love and don't listen to anybody else. Go for it. You know, people spend, you know, a hundred grand on a stupid car that loses money in the minute you drive it off the lot. You know, just surround yourself. The great collectors in any field have always swum against the tide. One of the things photographers, of course, can do, which I know David Hearn did a lot, is just swap prints. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the cheapest way of... of um building a collection. Yeah, exactly that. Listen, Peter, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely uh, joyous. You you might get a lot of hate mail, Grant, (laughs) and so will I, but we'll compare the hate mail. Oh, well, you know, if we don't do these things, then who's going to do them? And that's the, you know, one of the reasons behind why I do this podcast is to give voice to other voices so that we, we do swim against the tide. It is the spirit of Dylan, which infuses everything I do anyway. And, you know, and I think that's just so important for people to hear you because, you know, you're kind of that kind of caricature of a gallerist or a curator is so strong that it's it's so refreshing to hear a different voice and a different approach. Well, thank you. Well, you're my brother in arms here. So (laughs) maybe we'll do part two. I think we might. We might need to. <laughs> and we can, we can shout off all the other things we didn't talk about. All right. Well, listen, Peter, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Great. And we'll, I think we'll definitely do it again. All right, mate. Thank you. Be well. Bye. Well, thank you, Peter, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It may have covered a few areas that you weren't expecting. It certainly did uh, for me. Anyway, Just leaves me, as always, to say, take care.